All right. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30 is our text for tonight. Brothers, Jesus, the light of the world. Well, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of great memories about uh, my, my kids growing up in the church from their sweet Sunday school teachers that they had and so many memories of even older ladies who taught my kids, especially when they were younger, to some of the cute little projects that they made um, growing up in their classrooms, especially as toddlers and elementary school and all of that. Those are like my greatest treasures that I have in my office or stored away, and I often look at those. Um, I love the scriptures that they would memorize. Oftentimes, some of these teachers would have them memorize wonderful scriptures, and I think a lot of them still remember those scriptures, and those, those have been very useful for them uh, over the years. And I also love the songs that their teachers would have them sing. Um, over the years, we'll reminisce about that. Or, oh, remember when you used to sing this particular song, or we'll have a video of them singing a song. And one of my all-time favorite songs that my kids were taught as toddlers was it was a song that went something like this. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Remember that song? This little light of mine. Oh, come on. Don't. It's manly to sing, okay? Come on. Some of you really want to, are motivated to sing right now. Come on now, brothers. But you, yeah, yeah. So you guys remember that song? It's a great, that's a great song. I mean, that's like, that's like big theology deposited into little minds if you think about it. I mean, it's speaking about being a witness in this world because we are those who receive Christ, who is the light of the world, right? And even as believers, I think that song reminds us that if we are in Christ, that we are those who are called to, to walk in the light, who walk in holiness, in Christ-likeness, as Jesus is the light, right? So, wonderful song. And this is really the, the theme of our time tonight, Jesus as the light of the world. And here's yet another staggering, life-altering, if you embrace it, self-claim by our Lord Jesus. One of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the, is the light of the world. And if you remember the context again, th this comes about six months, this passage. This is about six months before Jesus goes to the cross. Things are continuing to escalate between Jesus and the religious leaders. Um, and you keep thinking that Jesus is going to be killed by these guys, that everything's going to escalate to the point of him being killed. But in the midst of this, we get statements like in verse 20, if you will notice, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We've seen that a number of times, right? That Jesus is on a divine clock and nothing is going to thwart his plan unless he allows it. He is sovereign. He, it's his, he operates according to his divine prerogative and according to his father's will. So his hour had not yet come. Remember also that this is what time of the year? What particular feast? The Feast of Tabernacles, right? The Feast of Booths, an eight-day feast remembering the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites in the Old Testament. And so Jesus finds himself, according to verse 20, at the temple treasury. The temple treasury was, was located in what was known as the court of women. And it was called this because women could go no further than this particular area. And the treasury was located there where people would bring their offerings and their alms, right? That was one of the big 
um, duties of the, the devoted Jew to bring offerings and alms to the temple, especially during feasts. And they would deposit the, these alms or, or offerings into these 13 large trumpet-shaped receptacles, each with, this, each with this large opening into which you would put your offering. And so they would come and do this. And so this court of women was really the most populated part of the temple, especially right now during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was packed. It was very, a lot of energy there. It was very busy. And so it's here that another important ritual would take place each day of the week of this particular feast. And that ritual or ceremony was the lighting of the, of the luminaries or the candle holders in the temple. There's a lot of debate about what these were and all of that. Just think of these, these candle holders with multiple arms that would be set up all over the court of women. And each day during this feast, as it would begin to get dark, they would light these and they would stay on all night supplying light to the, to the temple. And so this temple was, was lit. Some historians uh, describe the temple at night as resembling the brightest of diamonds because you could see from afar the blazing light because of these luminaries that would be lit, illuminating the temple. It was quite a, a sight to see, especially from a distance. And again, what they were celebrating was what back in the day guided the nation during the 40-day wilderness wandering, according to Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22. Write that verse down. A cloud by day would guide the Israelites, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, to be their guide as they traveled in the midst of this darkness. And so think about that, that, that imagery. That's quite an imagery from the Old Testament and it's with this historical imagery as the background and situated somewhere strategically in the court of women as these luminaries are being lit that Jesus gets up in verse 12. And if you're taking notes, I want us to ponder the significance of the truth which Jesus declares here. That's your first point. Ponder the significance of the truth which Jesus declares here. Look at verse 12 with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Here's another staggering statement. One of the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. It's really a statement of, of his deity, that he is God. It brings back to our minds the name that God claimed for himself in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, if you remember, right? When he told Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. Who is that? Yahweh, the one true God of the Old Testament. Amazing. It's also a messianic statement here by Jesus. I am the light of the world. He is making a messianic statement. Jesus is pointing to himself as the long-awaited Messiah. And I want you to see this, okay? Go with me to Isaiah Chapter 42, Isaiah 42, these are good passages for you to write down or to look at with me as well. Isaiah 42 and verse 5, thus says God, the Lord or Yahweh who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Notice that. 
Underline, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Look at Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6. Just a few pages over to your right. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. Let's read from verse 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel may be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Verse 6, he says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a what? As a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He keeps talking about, about light, right? That will be ushered in by this, by this future Messiah who's going to come. He's going to be a light to the nations. Look at Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 4. 51 and verse 4. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Over and over again, he's talking about this, this light that will be ushered in by this future Messiah of God who will come into this dark world full of deception and bring truth to bear and justice to bear upon the nations. Who is that? That's the long-awaited Messiah, right? And then back in John chapter 1 and verse 4, if you remember when pa Pastor PJ taught that, what, is, what does John say? In him, in Jesus, John 1, 4, in him was life. And the life was the what? Was the light of men. What is that light referring to? Well, it's a metaphor in Scripture. It's the, it's the opposite of darkness. It's truth as opposed to falsehood. It's holiness as opposed to wickedness. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John writes this, God is Light, which is a metaphor again for holiness here, for truth as opposed to falsehood. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we, believer, say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What is John saying? Believers who say that they are in fellowship with Christ are to are, have now been delivered from darkness, delivered from falsehood, and they are to be walking in holiness in the truth, i.e. light. Walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. Also, when Jesus, ponder this, when Jesus says he's the, he's the light of the world, he's pointing to his, to his uniqueness and his exclusivity as the only light of the world. Over and over again, he is the light that could never be extinguished. He is the light that, is, that shines the brightest. He is the light that, that guides and directs people when they embrace him. He is the light that opens the eyes of our understanding to the truth, namely himself. Amen? Jesus is the light. In saying that he himself is the light of the world, Jesus is saying that he himself is the only one who brings illumination and understanding of the truth into this dark world. World. Look at the latter half of verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, if you really want to live, you follow the light, right? Who is Christ. So this is a, a massive self-claim of Jesus that we need to ponder, even as believers, right? 
who are those who have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. And now throughout the book of 1 John, we are called to walk in the light functionally. We are positionally in the light in Christ. Now we are called to practically flesh out the implications of that in the way that we walk in holiness and in Christ-likeness before the Lord. But this is a massive self-claim of Jesus. To proclaim that he himself is the light is for him to pronounce himself as God. And this is the whole point of John. He is God. Therefore, you ought to believe in him. You ought to transfer trust from yourself and your own good works and your own resources and put your trust in Jesus alone because he is God. He is the light of the world. Oh, the Pharisees are not happy campers right now, are they? Again, they're not happy campers. They, they take huge exception with Jesus' claim again. Look at verse 13 with me. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now he's going to address their concern of the two or three witnesses in a minute. But their problem, mark it, is not a lack of evidence. It's that they don't believe Jesus' testimony. His word is not good enough for them. Ponder the significance of Jesus' statement. Ponder the significance of Jesus' statement. Brothers, we should never, ever, ever read the self-claims of Jesus, especially as we study the Gospel of John, haphazardly, flippantly. So, if you are here tonight and you are not saved, you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you realize what Jesus, you need to ponder the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus offers himself here to you if you're still living in darkness as the only one exclusively, as God of very God who can open your spiritual eyes to reality. That's what truth means. Truth is reality. Things as they really are. You know how the Bible describes the non-believer? The person who's a non-Christian, the person who trusts in themselves rather than Christ as living a life of deception, living a, a lie, living in a state of, of, of blindness and deception. Jesus to you says tonight, come to the light. Come to me that you may see things as they really are. Stop living a life of deception. Stop living a life of spiritual blindness. He's calling upon you to come to him. He is the light of the world who can open your eyes to the truth so that you live out your purpose in this world to glorify God and enjoy him forever, now and forevermore. That can only happen through Jesus Christ. And to us also who are in Christ, right? What does John, uh, uh, Psalm 119 and verse 105 say? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. For us who are believers, there's a, there are implications here also of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. We must continue to live that out, meaning that we must continually be guided by Christ who is the light. How does that happen? By means of his word. Psalm 119 verse 105, right? His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Just like when, when you go camping and you need a flashlight, right, in the pitch dark kind of condition, so it is in, in this life. When we stop depending upon Jesus and being guided by his holy word, we are going away and 
We can even fall into a state of deception, functionally speaking, as believers, where we stop seeing things as they are, and we begin to get anxious or doubting or angry or whatever, or frustrated about the circumstances that we see here in this world, in our culture. We can begin to allow the culture to infiltrate our thinking. We need to, even as believers, live out the implications of Jesus being the light by being guided by his word, right? Romans 12, 2. Be renewed continually in your thinking, how? By means of the Word of God. Colossians 3.16, allowing the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. So there are implications here both for you if you are here and you don't know Jesus. He is the one who says, come to me. Come to me. I can open your eyes so that you truly see things for what they are, so that you see the truth. And there are implications for us as believers that we would continue to live out the reality that Jesus is our guide through His Word. Amen? Second, second, be convinced of the witnesses to the truth. Be convinced of the witnesses to the truth. It's interesting here that it seems at first glance that after verse 12, if you note, after Jesus' declaration that he is the light, it's as if Jesus goes completely away from that statement. But really what he does in verses 14 through 20 is to bring the full weight of evidence in support of his, of his declaration that he is the light. What evidence does he provide as you take notes? One, notice there is his personal witness. There is his personal witness in verses 14 through 15. Now watch this. Watch this because he says two amazing things about his personal witness. First, his personal witness is true by virtue of where he came from. His personal witness is true by virtue of, of where he came from. Look at verse 14. Jesus answered... Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. I come from heaven, he says. Here's why my testimony, my personal witness is true, because of where I came from. I come from heaven where you guys believe that all truth originates from heaven, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, dwells. That is where I came from. I mean, if, if you want to know the truth, you want it from someone who, who comes from a place like heaven itself, right? And that's where Jesus came from. That's what he's saying. My personal witness is true because of, of the fact that I originate from heaven where Yahweh dwells, the God of Israel. That's where I come from, where God is, who is the source of all truth. Boy, it's like reading about the land of Israel, reading about the land of Israel as opposed to, to interacting with someone who's actually, who's actually been there, who's walked the place, that land of Israel, who, who knows what the place smells like. Jesus is saying, I come from heaven itself and I can tell you about reality, about the truth. I am a, a, a witness of this because I come from heaven. I originate from there. Second, I want you to notice his personal witness is true, he says, because of his kingdom priorities. Because of his kingdom priorities. What do we mean? Because Jesus comes from heaven, he doesn't judge, verse 15, according to the flesh. He's speaking about heavenly realities. Verse 15, you judge, he says, according to the flesh. I judge no one. What does that mean? Jesus is speaking about heavenly realities. That he doesn't judge anyone, listen, by the same standards. These guys judge according to the flesh. Their evaluations, their assessments are not spiritual ones, but fleshly ones, carnal ones. 
Remember back in John chapter 6, verse 63, um, what he said to the skeptics when they were struggling with Jesus, saying they must partake of, of him as the bread of life? What did Jesus say in John 6, 63? In essence, you don't get it. It's the Spirit, he says, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life. In other words, I'm not talking to you guys about fleshly carnal things. I'm talking to you about spiritual kingdom realities. That's what he's getting at in verse 15 here. They're carnal. They're fleshly. Jesus doesn't judge things by the flesh. He's, he's, he comes from heaven and he is pointing to great kingdom realities, heavenly realities. But these guys don't get this. They don't see this. They're, they're carnal. And isn't this the problem with the, with the non-believer? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, the natural person, by which they, he means the, the fleshly person, the person who doesn't have spiritual eyes to see, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned, he says. So what do we need to do? Understanding that all the more, we need to be praying that God may open the eyes of people to see the truth, right? If they don't have spiritual eyes to see, to be able to discern spiritual things, all the more, God has designed this thing, evangelism, so that we would be all the more dependent upon him, knowing that he is the one, as we're faithful to proclaiming the message, he is the one that opens the spiritual eyes of people to see the truth, right? Drives us to our knees all the more. So Jesus says, you don't believe my witness because you're unspiritual men. I judge no one. I don't judge anyone by your carnal standards. His priorities are kingdom priorities. And so Jesus calls upon himself as a personal witness. But second, I want you to no note, if you're taking notes, there is also his father's witness. There is also his father's witness. Look at verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, he says, verse 16... My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Not only is Jesus from heaven, but Jesus also says that he has a unique, eternal relationship with his Father who has sent him on his mission, and he brings his Father to bear upon this situation as his own witness. God the Father is my witness. And then he adds, he now addresses their, their concerns about witnesses, in verses 17 and 18, notice, in your law, verse 17, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Why does Jesus say this in verses 17 and 18? What well, you see there, they're appealing without quoting it to two particular passages, Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15, which speak of the need to have two or three witnesses in order to confirm a charge against another, right? When committing a crime. But let me ask you, who do those rules apply to? Who do those rules apply to? Sinners, right? That law is for sinful human beings, specifically for a person charged with committing some crime. But Jesus hasn't committed any crime, though, of course, they would love to charge him of a crime, right? He hasn't committed any crime. Jesus is sinless and perfect. 
And so Jesus appeal, appeals here to his personal witness and to the witness of his, of his father. Well, them's fighting words, aren't they? Look at verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Now, at first glance, it seems like they are plain dumb. But if you look at verse 27 with me, verse 27, it says that they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. That's John's personal commentary. That these guys genuinely were trying to understand this, right? Jesus reiterates this in verse 19, if you notice. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I mean, what a put down. They who claim to really know God didn't know him at all. Jesus says, you don't know him. If you knew him, you would believe my testimony as well as the testimony of my father. There's also some irony here in Jesus' statement. Obviously, they know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus in an intimate, personal way, right? And so notice, Jesus brings two witnesses to the witness stand, himself and his father, but these men are so spiritually blind, they don't see the truth here. Again, this is the diagnosis, brothers of the whole world in which we live. People are spiritually blind. You know, on Sundays... And now Saturday nights for our services and, and really throughout the week, but especially when I'm, I'm heading to services and traveling from where we live on Los Alisos, some of the men when we moved in in January to our home said, don't travel these other paths from your place. You should always travel to Los Alisos, less lights. So I want you to know those of you who gave me, including you, brother, gave me some advice on that. I've taken it. But as I'm traveling from Los Alisos and northernmost Mission Viejo to the church, I mean, you see people walking their dog. You see people jogging. You see people who are driving their car. You know, you get to a red light and then they're right there next to you, to your left or to your right. You see people who are, you know, doing all kinds of activity. And from the human eye, of course, they are alive. But how oftentimes do we remember that those are really the walking dead? Do you realize that? We're talking about the walking dead if they don't know Christ. And I often think about that. Man, those are spiritually blind people. What, in a condescending way? No, because were it not for the grace of God, I would be in the same place as well, and so would you, right? But I, I think about that in this, just to re remind myself of my mission and of the way that Jesus saw people when he came. He saw them as, 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 as souls, right? Souls in a, in a shell called a body. And he always looked at things from, with kingdom eyes, and he, was, he knew that he was walking amongst the, the walking dead. And so he always tried to, to witness to them concerning himself. I wonder how often we think about that. Jesus is, this is the diagnosis of the whole world here. That they are spiritually dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says that the God with a little g, the God of this world, has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Boy, that's helpful, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that's helpful in our evangelism and in our outreach to remember that ultimately when somebody doesn't embrace the truth as you share it, it's not personal toward you. It's really not. It feels that way. And certainly because Jesus is our Lord and we love him, right? We take that personally in the sense. But in an ultimate sense, brothers, it's not personal toward us when they reject the truth. They are spiritually blind people. They need the Lord. They need the Lord. And we need to be driven to prayer all the more. 
What happens then organically when a, a person comes to embrace Jesus? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God opens our eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Listen to this. In the face of Jesus Christ. I love that. We see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ reveals to us the glory of God. When you are walking in darkness and spiritually blind, you don't see Jesus as beautiful and lovely and worthy of your worship and time and resources. You are fixed with the worries and the concerns of life. You don't see Jesus for the beautiful Savior that he is. That is to walk in spiritual darkness, right? But when you are a Christian... Though you may struggle, and the Christian life certainly ebbs and flows, and there's this process called sanctification where we are still sinners saved by grace, and we struggle. Even so, as a believer, you always come back to seeing the reality that Jesus is beautiful and absolutely worth it, even in your trials and your difficulties. Amen? That's the, the fight of the Christian man right there. When you, were, when you were outside of Christ, there was no fight. There was no struggle. You just gave in to those dark things, to the wickedness that your heart longed for. Now there's a struggle, isn't there? Now there's a fight by the grace of God because you love Christ and you consider him worthy. You've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now watch this. Watch this. Having proclaimed the truth to them concerning himself... And having provided the evidence of witnesses concerning the truth about himself, we learn now that we are to warn of the consequences of rejecting the truth. That's your third point. Warn of the consequences of rejecting the truth. We're reminded here from the ministry of Jesus, from his example, and this, is, this has implications for evangelism. We're reminded here that it's not enough to share the truth with people we must also tell them what will befall them if they don't embrace the truth concerning Jesus. I want you to see this. On the heels of giving them ample testimony that they might believe, Jesus now tells them of the consequences of rejecting him. And brothers, we must do the same thing as well in love and in gentleness and with graciousness, but we must do so. Now, how does he warn them? If you're taking notes, one, he warns them that time is running out. He warns them that time is running out in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, notice. It says, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. By this time, he's been ministering now for three years or so. But in about six months, he's going to the cross. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend, go back to heaven. And essentially, Jesus is saying, time is running out for you. Unless you repent, you will die in your sin, he says. You will die in your sin. What a warning. What a warning. Our Savior is saying to them, the time is fleeting. Time is fleeting. I'm not always going to be here with you. Time is fleeting. Will they respond? Look at verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. What's that all about? Well, they're thinking that he's going to commit suicide. The Jews believe that suicide was the worst of sins. For you to commit suicide meant no public funeral for you. You commit suicide, you go to a place lower than hell, a place of eternal damnation where there is no hope, and that's a place where they are not going. This is what they're, they're asking Jesus. You're going you're gonna to kill yourself and thus go to a place that we're not going to go to? 
That's what they're asking here. Secondly, notice, he warns them of their need to respond. He warns them of their need to respond in verses 23 to 27. Look at verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You think he's trying to get a point across to them? There's, I'm warning you right now. I'm warning you, if you don't respond to the truth, if you, if you do, are not driven to action, to repentance, you will die in your sins. And you keep hoping as you read these accounts, you keep hoping, uh, come on, folks, respond. Are they going to respond to Jesus' call? But look at verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Boy, we, we might say, respond uh, with Jesus' words with anger, wouldn't we? Jesus is so patient here. So patient. You just don't get it. They don't get it. They're perfectly content living in willful ignorance, these, these Jews. Look at verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. In essence, what Jesus is saying, there's so much more that I have to tell you from my Father, but you're not ready to receive it. They're not ready to receive this. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Again and again, John is telling us these people were, are showing themselves to be ignorant and spiritually blind. But I submit to you that this is not just naivety on their part. This is willful ignorance. Because you see, it didn't matter how much proof or how many witnesses Jesus gave these people. Their problem was not a lack of proof. Their problem was unbelief, wasn't it? Unbelief. Look at the works that Jesus has performed. Listen to the words that Jesus is uttering. And they still will not believe. What a lesson for us. See, you can... You can and should give people proof and evidence if they genuinely ask. We learn this in apologetics, don't we? I mean, I've been in many gospel conversations where someone is, is genuinely and sincerely asking questions. And I think in those circumstances, from a human perspective, if somebody seems like they're genuinely asking questions about the truth, we should give them answers because our faith is a reasonable faith, isn't it? There are reasons for why. It's not an illogical faith. It's not an unreasonable faith. It's a reasonable faith. So we should give them answers if they are sincerely asking. In fact, 1 Peter 3.15 is helpful here, which tells us, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet, with, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, as people come to you and they want to have these discussions, be prepared to give a defense and apologetic for your faith in Jesus. Be prepared to do that. But remember, as you do so, that if they reject the truth, it will not be because of a lack of proof. It's because they love their sin. They love their sin, whether they admit it or they don't. To give up their, their self-idolatry, and those pet sins and that rebellious lifestyle of autonomy and not accountability to God, that is really the issue. That is the issue. 
because they love the darkness. Remember back in John 3.19? It says that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. Pretty clear, isn't it? You don't come to Jesus. It's not because of a lack of proof. It's because you love your sin more than you love Christ. That's why. So in his warning, Jesus warns them that the time is running out of their need to respond. Thirdly, if you're taking notes, he warns them that they will be held accountable. That they will be held accountable in verses 28 to 30. Look at this in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Hmm. He's about six months or so, as I said, away from his death. And far from, from that being a death of which they have nothing to do, they will be culpable for it. Did you notice in verse 28 the wording of Jesus? He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. Who does he hold responsible for his death? Everyone who doesn't believe, right? Not only that, but you will know that I am he, he says. They will know who truly Jesus is. Do you remember where I came from? Do you remember who sent me? And even though all will abandon him, his father won't. Look at verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. All will abandon Christ, but he who sent me, his father is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Boy, he's always directing attention back to his father, right? Always deferring to, to God the Father. This is why they will be held accountable. Because even though they claim to know God, they rejected God's Messiah. And in so doing, they rejected God's very witness. God's very testimony. The very God that they claim to believe in. Well, did anyone listen to Jesus? John tells us in verse 30. By the way, that's a typo on your questions that a brother pointed this out so helpfully earlier. There's a typo there. It's not John 8, 3, but John 8, 30. Okay? So make sure that you guys make a, make a note of that. John tells us in verse 30, notice, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Are these true believers, genuine believers? We don't know, but we know, we know better, don't we? Context is king. We know better than to take these these as all genuine followers. In fact, on our, in our next passage, Jesus will be addressing those who had believed in him in verse 31, if you notice, and then they quickly turn on him in verse 33. So we got to be careful. There's no assurance that all of these are believers. But here we see our Lord warning his hearers of the consequences should they continue down their destructive path, always gracious, always gentle, but the Lord Jesus doesn't pull any punches with these people, right? He tells them the truth. He warns them that they will die in their sins should they continue in their unbelief. I don't know about you, but that, that, that puts chills up my spine. For him to tell these people this, people that could even take him to the cross at that moment, he doesn't fear. He's on a divine timetable, but he wants to tell them in love what is true. You will die in your sins. I mean, that is the most frightening thing that can happen to any person, that you die in your sins. That you die physically the first death, but then that you die eternally speaking the second death and not go with Jesus to heaven to enjoy him forever and ever and ever. 
That's the most frightening thing that can happen. For you to die in your sins and go to a place, listen to me, a place called hell. A real physical place. A real location. A real physical place of eternal torment where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a real place. A real place of of weeping and gnashing of teeth as Jesus described it. A place where people spend eternity suffering forever and ever and ever. Why? As a reminder of the seriousness of their sin against the holy and loving God. Hell is a place where a person will forever be reminded, not just of the fact that they rebelled against their maker, but listen to me, more so of the fact that they rejected God's free, loving offer of forgiveness found in Jesus Christ alone. And the person in hell will have to remember that forever and ever and ever with no more hope of being saved from that location. And so you see why Jesus was so zealous, so passionate, so resolute on on going to the cross in six months about warning people that they needed to embrace him as the light of the world. This is why, because he understood about that place, that if people died in their sins, he knew where they were going to go. That's why he came to the end of the world, to seek and to, and to save those who are lost. And that's why we're here, brothers. That's why we should be so resolute and so passionate about Jesus' mission. Amen? In the same way, we should be like Jesus, instructing and appealing and pleading and begging. 2 Corinthians 5.20, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to your maker. Bow the knee to your maker. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the apostles in Acts 2, we should be pleading with people, be saved from this perverse generation, Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Be saved from this perverse generation, said Peter, the apostle, to the multitudes there. Today, now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. It should be something that we should consistently be pleading with people about if we understand the seriousness and the weight of what people are facing in the future. And more importantly, that they're not giving glory to God who created them for himself to give him glory, to find him all satisfying. You say, well, Pastor Kempis, you know, God is sovereign. And no matter what, people, whoever is going to believe is going to believe because God is sovereign Yes, preach it. God is sovereign, but he uses means, right? He uses us to plead and warn people just like he sent somebody to plead and warn you. What did Jesus do? All the while speaking of the sovereignty of God and salvation, in John's gospel, he said things like these. Ready? John chapter 1, verse 43, he said to Philip, follow me, Philip. He's calling people to, to make the commitment. In that case, Philip. John chapter 6, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's calling people to believe in him. John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Is he pleading? Yes. Does he believe in the sovereignty of God? Yes. Is he pleading? Yes. So must we. John chapter 1, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Again and again and again, Jesus calls for a response. Jesus calls for repentant action flowing from a repentant, humble heart that people, where people see the brokenness of their condition, right? And the beauty of Jesus. And here in our passage, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the great evangelist. Out of a heart of compassion for the lost, calling for a response from hell-bound sinners. And my prayer, beloved brothers, is that we too, like our Lord, would carry on his mission of proclaiming the gospel because we are speaking and facing and looking into the eyes of hell-bound sinners who need to hear about the love of Christ, right, to save them. But they must see their sin first if they are going to savor the Savior. Oh, Pastor Kempis, you keep beating the same drum over and over again. Oh, Pastor Mike keeps talking about our mission every Sunday morning. Here's my question for you. When was the last time that you shared your faith? When was the last time that you actually shared your faith? If you have grumbling hearts like that about evangelism. When was the last time that you actually looked at somebody in the eyes and felt compassion for them because they are like sheep having no shepherd and you were driven to want to share the good news of Jesus with them? When was the last time? Can I get a name? Right? We should be able to give names. Did you share the gospel with someone last week? Are you looking, praying, pleading for opportunities, divine appointments, brothers, to share Christ with people? See, we need to have a, a heart for the lost in our communities. We need to have, have a heart for the lost in our home. For the lost in our neighborhoods, for the lost in, in your job situation, for the lost amongst us, people who even attend Compass who are not all believers. Maybe they profess Christ, but you know and I know that they're not believers. We need to have a heart for people the way that our Savior had a heart of compassion. Amen? We see that in John's gospel again and again and again. So we continue to fan the flame for us to tell people about the good news of Jesus, a Savior who saves. Amen? Let's pray. Father. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you for the beauty and the perfections of Christ. And I pray that we would fall more in love with him as our pastor encouraged us two Sundays ago, that we would be so captivated by Jesus so as to be propelled to share about our, our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us. Help us not to be a duty, but a delight, the delight of our hearts to, Lord, see people awaken spiritually from spiritual death and that they would pass to eternal life, quality and quantity of life found only in Jesus Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.